Morning. Ah, today, today we're going to talk about Mormonism. If you didn't know that, you're visiting. Well, today we're talking about Mormonism. The Mormon Church, the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is what they now prefer to be called. They don't think it's good to be called Mormon, but Mormon is the name I always knew them as growing up, and Mormon is what I'm going to call them still. You might have friends who are Mormons, you might have neighbors, you might have schoolmates who are Mormons, maybe some of you were Mormons, I don't know. I have family, cousins who are Mormons, they might have come to your door, you might have spoken with them. Let me pray before I really get going. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we talk about Mormonism today, that you would convict our own hearts of our sin and of the things that we are tempted to do and believe in our own hearts as Christians. And we pray that we would not look down on those who have been trapped in a false religion, um, but that you would bless this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so eight years ago, I moved to Bloomington, Indiana to be part of a pastor training program there. And I, was, I took my time because I was moving from uh, Washington State, so I kind of meandered to Indiana. And I meandered so that I could stop and visit a lot of family. And on the way, I stayed with a cousin who I'd, I knew from growing up, but I didn't get to see him that often. Didn't know him that well. Mormon cousin, a little older than me, married with a family in Utah, in Utah, near Salt Lake City. So I pulled in late in the evening to his home. He wanted to talk. He wanted to talk. He wanted to talk religion. He wanted to evangelize me. He wanted to share the Mormon gospel, kind of, kind of. And I was unprepared uh, in more than one way. One way I was unprepared is that I brought in coffee as a hostess gift for his wife, which is dumb because, yeah, Mormons don't, they don't do caffeine. They don't do alcohol. They don't do caffeine. Those are drugs. So no alcohol, but also no coffee, tea, chocolate, none of that. So I felt really silly. And I should have. How, how was I ignorant of that? I grew up with these Mormon cousins. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. And I, I knew Mormonism was wrong. I knew about some of the stranger beliefs. I had a, the general idea that there was nothing at all in it to appeal to me as a Christian. But I hadn't had any extended conversations, not with Mormon missionaries, not with my cousins. And so I was caught off guard in certain ways. And I think what I, what I remember being most caught off guard by was how assertive my cousin was. He starts out after a little bit of small talk. So let me ask you a question. Do you think Mormons are Christians? No, I, I don't. Mormons aren't Christians. It's like, I, I hate it when people say that because we are Christians. And I was like, is this a game? Like, <laughs> that's, that's how I felt, right? But I was really caught off guard. I was taken aback. And that's a common claim for Mormons to make. But I just did not expect it. And I'll come back to that conversation in a while. But let's talk, let's talk about who the Mormons are and where they come from real quick, because I need to give you at least a little history, I think. So Mormonism is a religion founded in the 1820s or 1830s, depending on how you want to think about it, by Joseph Smith, who was a farm boy from upstate New York. So in the 1820s, the 1830s, in that area, there's a major thing happening in America, major religious thing. Anyone tell me? Big, big thing. Thanks, Meredith. The Second Great Awakening. Second Great Awakening. It was a revival or a series of revivals that lasted 25 years, 40 years, kind of depends on how you want to account for it, lasted a long, 
a long time. A revival is a time when people come to Christ, right, make a profession of faith in great, in great numbers. And we, and we could talk, or in, or in a really intense way, we could talk a lot about revival and what it is or isn't and how to think of it and how our understanding of what a revival is has been shaped by the Second Great Awakening. But that's like a whole other sermon or even a whole other like Sunday school series or something. Um, there's just, there's a lot to talk about. But in any case, people were being converted to Christianity by hundreds and by thousands. Not just in New York, in all these different states, through all these different preachers. And it was, it was intense. There was a lot of interest in religion. There was a lot of interest in like God's spirit is coming and people are having these really emotional and strong reactions to him. And there was an interest in just being in touch with kind of the spiritual world. And at that time, there was also, so along with the Christian stuff happening, there was interest in the occult. People just wanted to be in touch with the spiritual, right? So they were doing, there was occult stuff happening too. Preachers preaching everywhere, a lot of excitement. And Joseph Smith was in this world, and he was interested to hear different preachers, and he was interested in attending revival meetings, and he was listening to different denominations present Christianity, and he writes about this. You could read his, his account of this stuff if you wanted. And he says he didn't know what to think. He didn't know what to think. He was also, he was also himself a practitioner of the occult. <laughs> They, he used something called a seer stone, which is a translucent stone. And he claimed we actually have a court case where he was convicted and fined of doing this, right? Um, of using what's called a seer stone. And he claimed that he could see through this into like the hillside and he could see veins of gold or he could find hidden treasure. Or if you lost something, he could look and he could tell you where it was. And so you pay Joseph Smith some money to look into his seer stone so he was interested in all this stuff. Now, what he says is that he didn't know what to believe, so he went into the woods and prayed, and then he had a vision. God answered his prayer. He was just following the Bible's advice. It says, if you don't know, ask God, right? Seek, and you'll find. So he did. He sought, he found. He found God. God made himself known to Joseph Smith. God the Father and God the Son appeared to him in the woods, and He's, he was like, what, what do I do? What church do I join? Don't join, don't join any church, Joseph. I'm going, they're all wrong. They're all bad. I'm going to found the true church. I'm going to restore Christianity through you. Whoa. All right. And how is this restored Christianity going to come about? Well, Smith said that God showed him the, the, the location of a set of golden plates buried in a hillside in New York. So he dug them up, and these golden plates were written in a language called Reformed Egyptian. I don't know what that is. Reformed Egyptian. But it does mean hieroglyphs. Could he read Egyptian hieroglyphs? Well, an angel came down and translated these plates for Joseph as he looked at them through his, his seer stone. Actually, the seer stone was in the bottom of a hat, the way he tells it. And he looked... And there's, there's another man in the room with him, you know, testifying that all this was true, was really happening. And the angel would, would speak to Joseph the proper translation of this, these Egyptian hieroglyphs, and he would write the translation. And that book that came out of that is the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon. What is this book about? Well, it's, it's about a forgotten history of two tribes in, in America, in the New World, right? Like North America. 
who, who came over from Israel uh, about 600 BC. So they came from Israel, these two tribes, and they lived, and there was a good tribe, and there was a bad tribe, and they were here a long time. And when Jesus was born in Israel, Jesus also, sometime after that, came and made himself known to these tribes and established 12 apostles, disciples in these tribes to set up his church here on America. So this is all prehistory, right? This is all, this is all like we're talking, you know, 35 AD right, stuff that's happening, right? With these tribes. And then eventually, over a period of time, the bad tribe killed the good tribe and thus ended true religion. Thus ended true religion because the church, the church as we know it, which we read about in the Bible, lost the true gospel early on. Okay, so here's this, this true religion. It stops. All we have left of it is this book written by a guy named Mormon. It's the Book of Mormon. It's his account. Joseph Smith digs it up. If you, if you want to ask, if you want to guess whether there's any, any evidence that's ever been found for these tribes in America and their civilizations, which are described in the Book of Mormon, you may ask, you may guess. No, no the answer is no. The answer is no. Supposedly, the descendants of the bad tribe, which did survive, those became the Indians that we know, right? The Native Americans. Okay. So, the Book of Mormon is not the only holy Mormon book. There's also a book called Doctrines and Covenants, which is mostly written by Joseph Smith. There's a book called The Pearl of Great Price, which is various writings. It includes Joseph's autobiography, right? His account of these things. And last and least, least for the Mormons, there is the King James version of the Bible. King James. Because remember, Mormonism says they are the true form of Christianity, right? And that what they're saying is not, it, it goes right along with the Bible, except that the Bible's been tampered with, you see, and a lot of things have been changed, and you kind of have to know, you get the idea. So what, what kind of, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I have to give you a little more, don't I? Mormonism was, was successful. It was successful. People liked it, right? Um, this began to gather steam. This began to gather steam around Joseph Smith and around men that he selected. And they, they were not liked by their neighbors. There's a lot of reasons, and I won't get into all of it, but suffice to say, they moved west to the Midwest, Joseph Smith founded a city in Illinois called Nauvoo, where he was acting as mayor and church leader, kind of controlling everything. Um, eventually, there was conflict with neighbors. There was even conflict inside Mormonism. And while Joseph Smith was in jail in Carthage, Illinois, awaiting trial, he was murdered by an angry mob. He was, he was murdered as he fired back. He'd, a gun had gotten smuggled in, so he was shooting at this big mob that came, and he was killed. Joseph Smith's successor, Brigham Young, took the Mormons west to what would become Utah, right? It wasn't yet. He took them west, and that's where they are today. And they've grown, and they've grown. As of this year, I read an article that says, the church estimates that there are 16.6 million Mormons around the world, which is a 50% increase since 2000. Now, same article says that those numbers are probably overreported, true on paper only, because of the way that the church reports its membership. But in any case, that's still a lot of people, right? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of growth. Okay, remember how I said, I said Joseph Smith got a vision of God the Father and God the Son appearing to him. Actually, in the earliest journal that we have, what he says is simply that he saw Jesus, or he heard from Jesus. 
And then later, the account that he passed around was that it was angels that came down. And it was only years and years later, as he was solidifying his religion, that he said it was God the Father and God the Son. Okay, what do you think of Joseph Smith so far? What kind of a man are we talking about? A lying con man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very creative, very creative. One of Mormonism's own scholars, their own, like a committed Mormon, said, he came to the, the conclusion, which clearly made him uncomfortable, that the Book of Mormon was the invention of Joseph Smith. But this is a Mormon saying this. I don't want to sell Mormonism short. I don't want to deny that it has spiritual power, okay? It has spiritual power. Like, like all cults, false religions, things founded by con men, it has power from the father of all con men, whose name is Satan. The father of lies. He's good at it. He's good at it. Joseph Smith was good at it. Satan is good at it. And I haven't even mentioned anything really to you about what Mormonism teaches, right? About the relationship of God and man. I haven't even gone into it, but you already know what we're talking about. You get the idea. This is a, this is a twisted copy of Christianity. And like all false versions of the gospel, it's not just like unchristian, it's anti-Christian. It's opposed to Jesus. It opposes him, but it uses his name to do it, which is what throws you off, which is what throws you off. But these, these things work for a reason. They work for a reason. And the, you don't have to look far to find the reason. You don't have to try hard because the reason is in your heart. It's in my heart. Because that's where false religion lives. That's where lies about God live. That's where false versions of God or other gods get worshipped. We call them idols, right? They start in our hearts. I want us to think about this as we go. I'm going to put things under three basic categories. I'm going, to, I'm going to say rank, rules, and reputation. Rank, rules, and reputation. We'll talk about them as we go. You may get a bonus, R, I don't know, in there. But those are the three R's we're going to start with. So the first R, rank. The most important thing um, that a religion has to answer, right, is who is God? Who is God? What is he? Buddhists have an answer. Hindus have an answer. The Muslims have an answer. The Mormons have an answer. Who is God? God was, God was once a man like you and me. God is a flesh and blood being. He was a fallen creature like you and me. By living a good life with help from above, we'll get back to that, he became a God himself. He became a God. Starts down here. He gets up here. He's exalted. He made this world, not out of nothing, but out of Stuff, kind of like your kids build stuff with Lego blocks. You give them the blocks, they can build something. You, you give God material, he can build the world. Did he make you and me? Well, kind of. God has wives. God the Father, he has wives. Wife, wives. He gave birth to us. We're his spirit children. He gave birth to us. And then eventually he put us into bodies on the earth. Okay. But who do you think that the first and most important and highest ranking spirit baby would be? What's his name? Guess. Jesus. Uh, what about the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit's another important spirit being. No, it doesn't have a body. But was someone else's spirit child at some point. 
Okay, tracking so far. It's God's name, by the way, is Elohim. Elohim actually is a biblical word for God. It's a Hebrew word that means God, but it's here appropriated for this version of God. All right, um, Elohim gave birth to us. He put us in bodies. Adam and Eve were the first, and after they sinned, Elohim made a plan to put Jesus into a body. It's like a whole other story, so that his sacrifice could make us able to become gods like Elohim, okay? And, and you should be asking the question, if you're tracking, who helped Elohim if he was a fallen man like you and me? Well, we're talking about rank. You might have forgotten. Think about the implications of this system. So imagine a ladder stretching from earth to heaven and down in the dirt, right? It's people like you and me, flesh and blood. Just looking up there, we want to get to the top of that ladder. We want to get higher. We start climbing. We start climbing. Now, if you look up there near the heavens, what you're going to see is guys who are like glowing, like superheroes, like gods, I guess, right? Elohim, he's up there. If you could look a little higher than Elohim, what you'd see is that there was another god above him who helped him up on a higher rung of the ladder. And if you could look up further, past where you can see, you would, you would have to realize that there's an infinite number of these guys Climbing, climbing, climbing. Who's at the top of this ladder? There's no one at the top of this ladder. There's, there's just a system of rank that goes on. Do you want to be the next rank? Do you want to be like God? Okay. Do you get the appeal of this? Some of you don't, but, you, but I think that you should. You're tempted to hate God's authority. <laughs> I am tempted to hate God's authority. Sometimes you have hated God's authority, and sometimes I have, for sure. If you don't know that you're tempted to hate God's authority, his absolute, the buck stops here authority, you simply don't know yourself. You just don't know yourself. But what if you could think of God as someone who, oh yeah, sure, he has big shoes, but one day I could fit in those shoes. I could fit in those shoes. I could be like him. Think about what the devil told Eve in the Garden of Eden. What was, what was the lie? Well, Eve, if you eat this fruit... Um, you'll become like God. Become like God, knowing good and evil. In case you missed it, there's two different temptations in there, and the bigger one is to be like God. <laughs> it's to be up there with the big guy, like God. If you're like God in that sense, you don't need him. You don't have to bow, except in a certain sense, which is like, yeah, you have a dad. What's the difference between you and your dad? Gotta respect him, right? But, He's just you in 30 years. He's not a different kind of being. Make sense to you? God is like that. Elohim is like that. He's just like you. He's just got a few thousand years on you. You can get up there one day. And that's the heart of Mormonism. That's the heart of Mormonism. At the end of the day, you stand in God's place in his, at his rank. And you kind of sort of replace him. And this is a safe God. This is like a lowercase g God. This is a God who's not a threat to you. He's just not a threat to you. Let me read you something from the book of Isaiah about the God that we worship, who is a threat to us, it turns out. This is, from, this is a long passage from Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? 
And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? These are rhetorical questions, right? (laughs) The answer is no one. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol! A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Do you think you can step into this God's shoes? Are you going to fill his shoes one day? No, no, no. This is our God. This is the God that we worship. He is intense. I referred to this passage or one like it. There's a number of passages like this in Isaiah. When I was talking with my cousin... Because we were talking about the nature of God and he was telling me about, you know, becoming gods or something. And I, I said, God isn't going to share his glory with us. And my cousin, my cousin just brushed it aside. I think he wants to share it all. I think he wants to share it all. And that means that in the end, there's no one up there. There's no one for us to worship. Which is, you should admit to yourself... <laughs> That sometimes you've wanted this kind of thing. I have. How often as a, as a teenager in rebellion against God in certain ways would I rather have been a superhero than a Christian? You know, I just want power. I don't want to have to bow to you. I don't want to have to bow to you, God. And that means that there's no one up there to worship and there's no one to love us. There's no one who actually knows and loves us in our sin. There's just some dude who glows. The God of Mormonism is an idol. He's calculated to appeal to our flesh. He's just a servant of our whims in the end. But it's much better to live as God's creature than to simply be, want to be a God. I, so it's impossible for us to be like God. And it's evil for us to want to take God's place, but it's also pathetic. It's also miserable. You're a creature. You were created to worship Um, And everyone here is a worshiper. Whether you like it or not, you all worship something. You might worship yourself. You might worship yourself. You might worship some celebrity, singer, actor that you like. You might worship your family. You might worship money. You might worship success. But you do worship something. And it's part of our nature and you can't avoid it. Are are you ever going to be a not worshiper? Are you ever going to be a not creature? 
No. Our rank is to be on our knees before God forever. And there isn't any happiness apart from God. There's not any happiness. All right. Back to Mormonism. How do you climb the ladder? How do you climb the ladder to get to the rank to become a god? Okay, this is, this is R's number two and three. The second and third R's. Rules and reputation. Well, you need to keep lots of rules. There's religious rules. There's moral rules, which in turn help you maintain a certain reputation. The nice thing about this is that pretty much you can do it. You can do it. I mean, you can, you can keep the rules. You can keep up your reputation as part of a religious community. And you can be a fourth R, which is that, the bonus R I said you might get. You can be righteous and have righteousness. Just like anything else hard, Mormonism requires some sacrifices. But it's not that bad. Um, if you do it well, you will look good. You will look good. You will be righteous. You will be rewarded. I guess that's a fifth R. With a high rank, so many R's you'll get good feedback from your religious community and from other conservative people. Everyone remember the Mormon ads that used to run on TV? You've all seen those? You can find them on YouTube. Um, they're these really, these really swanky mini-movies. They tell a little story in like three minutes. There's one I watched about a little girl who goes home and she's like, Mommy, I want to tell you about my day. And the mom's like, that's nice, dear. And she pushes her away and the little girl's like, Daddy, I want to... Mm, that's nice, dear. Later. Daddy has to work now. And then she goes to her big sister. Do you want to hear what I... Closes the door, and then she goes out to the dog. Rex, do you want to hear about my day? And it's like, oh, it makes you want to cry. It's really well done. It really is. It's very clever. And it's all about family values. It's all about family values. It's about like, hey, you should spend time with your kids. Who can disagree with that? You shouldn't be a jerk. And you know what family values are, right? Don't divorce. Uh, teach your kids to work hard. Spend time with them. No adultery. Probably be fiscally conservative. Uh, and who could disagree with any of that? I can't. I can't. Christians don't disagree with that stuff. You might remember the more recent, the I'm a Mormon ads. Yeah, this is all on, this is all on YouTube. They're, they're creepy. They're creepy. All these, all these people... These are like three to five minute little documentaries, right? Mini documentaries about, hey, I'm, I'm this guy, or maybe I'm this famous guy that you like, like the singer, the lead singer for The Killers, if any of you like that band. But I'm this famous guy, or I'm this not so famous guy, and here's my life, and it's like really pretty, and I have a nice life, and my kids smile. That's an important part of family values, if you didn't know. Smiling children. It helps us figure out which ones of you have family values in this church. And so, and so and, but then, of course, the point is, this is Mormonism. I'm a Mormon. That's why my family is great, and that's why I'm happy. It's because I'm a Mormon. That's the point of these ads. Mormon world of family values, that's a big part of climbing the ladder. Did anyone notice that I skipped over something, like, gigantic? <laughs> in, in telling you how Mormon theology works? I did mention it, but I pretty much skipped it. What about Jesus? What about like the cross and all that stuff? Okay, you want to know what Mormons think about that? I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, he did that. Well, how do I get saved? You mean like climb the ladder to become a god? Well, you got, no, 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 I mean like saved. Saved? Yeah, saved from like God's wrath? Hell? Well, you are. 
What do you mean I am? Well, he died for you, but I don't believe in him. Well, he died for you, so you're okay. You have to be really, really, really bad to go to hell. You're like, you have to do a really bad job. But if you're just a normal person, your lot is just to live on kind of a renewed earth at the time of the resurrection, but you'll never become a god. You want to become a god, you do have to put faith in Jesus and climb the ladder like we've been talking about, okay? So, so much for the work of Jesus, who, of course, is a different Jesus in any case. He's not our Jesus. So, wait a minute. I thought sin was like a big deal, like serious business. I thought God said things like, this is from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And I thought that as we grappled with what that meant and with what God's standards are, we became intensely humbled before such a holy God and aware that we don't measure up. I thought that's what we've been learning all this time in Romans, as Pastor Jake has been preaching Romans. So much of forcing us down, down, down. No, this is what sin is. This is what you're like. No, you don't measure up. I know you're religious, but you still don't measure up, and you might even be worse because you're religious, and you think you measure up. No, you don't. God respects humility before his holiness. He doesn't respect your attempts at it. You don't need family values. You need to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Then we can talk about family values, right? Then we can talk about family values. Romans 3, 21 to 25, which we just heard about last week. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christianity is our heart-level religion. It's about the total disposition of our heart towards God. And that's intense. The, the idea is, being forgiven by Christ, we live together as the family of Christ, as the church. We, we do obey his rules by the power of his spirit, but we also stink at it. We also stink at it. There's no point at which we arrive at the proper standard of family values and smiling children and say, whew, nothing to see here. Like, we're forgiven, but we're still sinners. Which means that you actually have to know each other, you here in this room. You actually have to know each other if you're going to love or help anyone here. I have to know you. Pastors have to do that. We're kind of paid to do that. It doesn't count. No, that's, that's a joke. This, this is the church... <laughs> This is the church. We have to know each other. You even have to know me. And Jake, you even have to know our sin. You can't just look at smiling children like Peter Menzel and think everything is okay. Peter does smile sometimes. I've seen it. And that's, that's, what, that's what life is like. And it's intense and it's difficult and it's kind of a mess if we're being honest. Which we should be. We should be honest. It's a mess. It doesn't make for neat little documentaries. It doesn't make for awesome marketing campaigns, actually, like awesome ad campaigns. If you look at Mormons in social media or in the news or in politics, what do you see? You see a glittering image 
of righteousness. Someone who keeps the rules and has the right reputation. Well, why am I talking about this? Because it's appealing to us. It's appealing to us. I mean, Mormonism, anyone here used VidAngel? Cleans up the movies so you can watch them with your family. And I recommend it. But anyway, that's a Mormon company. I, I, here, I'll open a little can of worms and then I'll kick it over there. But anyone here watch The Chosen? Produced by Mormons. It's pretty for a reason. Okay, can of worms kicked over to the side. Um, anyone here, you like, you like the Mormon? Mormons are wealthy. They're prosperous. Their businesses do well. You ever stayed at a Marriott? I'm not saying don't stay at a Marriott, by the way. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's not my point. My point is, they're doing well. Good job, Mormons. You have some wealth, you have some power, you have smiling children, you have pretty advertisements. You have all these things. I mean, those ads are pretty. Look, what about the idea that if I'm just a decent person and I have the right kind of values and I don't misbehave in certain ways, then we're good. Forget this stuff about taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's stressing me out. You know what else stresses me out? You guys! So, forget it. How about this? The deepest questions we'll ask each other are, how did you make that lovely pot roast? It was delicious. How's your investments doing? How's it going with your new house? My kid saw your kid at the game. She sure was great. Such a relief. (laughs) Let me tell you. No community required. No community required. Right? Unless you're making us all look bad, then we'll ostracize you. Oh, did your kid actually sin in a way that other people noticed made us all look bad? That's not allowed. Oh, do you have deep anxiety or depression? People pay psychiatrists to deal with that. (laughs) Don't talk to me. Leave me alone. Go on some mission trips, maybe. Mormons have their mission trips. Do your religious programming. Do your give your volunteer time to the church. Check the boxes. Keep the rules. Keep your reputation. Don't tell me that that doesn't appeal to you. Uh, Listen, you don't have to be Mormon, okay, to want a comfortable spiritual fantasy world and live in it as a church. We could create it together. In fact, it wouldn't work if we didn't create it together. That's how this happens. It gets created together. It's a community movement. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Have you seen this? Can you see it in your own heart? A desire for a spiritual, comfortable fantasy world? I can see it in my heart. You don't have to identify with Jesus in any way that puts you at risk. You can avoid uncomfortable conversations with people. So you and I are basically... We're the originators of false religion. We're masters of false religion. We know how to do it. We know how and where to avoid the pain that comes from following Jesus. The pain that comes from dealing with our sins and being honest before God in our hearts and being honest with each other. We can avoid it. And we can look pretty while we avoid it. It's easier to look pretty if you avoid it. It's easier not to be a mess. So Isaiah 29, 13 to 14 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. What does God do when we're like, good with appearances, (laughs) 
good with appearances. You can have my mouth. You can have my head. You can't have my heart. What does God do? He judges us. He gives us what we want. Just what's happening in that passage in Isaiah. I still remember how spiritually and emotionally distressed I felt as I went to sleep in my, my cousin's guest room that night. Uh, and it wasn't because I heard anything that convinced me of anything. But it was, it was like, I was, I was, for, for an hour, I sat there and I was told wrong was right, right is wrong. Good is bad, bad is good. And I knew it was wrong. But my cousin has a pretty wife and pretty children. He's financially successful. And at the time, I wasn't successful in any way <laughs> that you could outwardly measure at least. And I wasn't married, you know. And I felt pretty lame. And I knew he was wrong. And I knew he was lying. And I knew that on some level, actually, he knew that he was lying. Uh, but he was getting away with it, as far as I could tell. He was getting away with it. And there was something really compelling about that. Like, you could just lie like that, and you can get away with it. It really unsettled me. It's kind of like a science fiction story, right? Where everyone's in the matrix, or everyone's a robot or something. Who knows? Everything around you is wrong. It's a lie. It's a simulation. And you're really uncomfortable, but everyone around you is just like, everything's fine. Have you ever seen the Truman Show? Sort of like that. And you start to feel like you're going crazy. Uh, and I didn't really feel better until I got coffee, not, not of course at his house, but at a gas station in the morning. And I was driving away, and I was like praying under my breath. I was like, I was really upset <laughs> that morning. It was bad. Um, I told you, I wasn't prepared at all. And then I got a little distance. I got a little perspective. I mean, what did I expect? It's a, it's, this, is, this is a spiritual power. Do you understand? This is satanic in the sense that there's a personal being named Satan who has minions called demons. And they work. They work. But they don't work without reference to our hearts. What are they using as bait? Well, things that appeal to our hearts. All this false religion. This is a whole community of people. My cousin is part of it. Of course, there's going to be some kind of spiritual power going on. What did I think? What did I think I was going to find? But I've never forgotten the pull towards it. Pull towards a world of darkness. Um, but remember that you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we should be able to feel that pull now. We should be able to identify it and realize we're tempted away from heart religion, engaging with the true and living God. Um, so I don't look down on my cousin. Um, I'm horrified that he's trapped in the devil's trap. And I, I think I understand how any one of us could be trapped like that, even without becoming a Mormon, right? A slave to outward appearances and false promises, bowing down to a false god in a futile effort to escape the true God who will judge the living and the dead, will not be bound by Mormon standards or by conservative American family value standards, who sees through lies and liars. It's a God of the truth. Um... And he's a consuming fire. And he's not going to share his glory with any man. He's a God who will judge us. And sometimes we draw back from him. Because a God like that is scary. He's scary. And we can't hide behind appearances. Uh, there's no efforts that are going to be good enough. What there is, is Jesus. There's Jesus. We can hide in Jesus. We can hide in Jesus. 
And he reconciles us to the Father and gives us his Holy Spirit. And this is our God. This is our God. And he needs to be the goal of our hearts, to know, worship, and love that God. Let me pray for us. Father, you are kind to us to, to teach us your word, to teach us the gospel. You're kind to us to bring us to Jesus and to let us see you as you are in your holiness and in your beauty and in your glory, which is above us and beyond our reach, but which is also near to us through the blood of Christ. And we ask that we, ask that we would not want to live in a world of appearances, but that we, we would want to be Christians, that we want to take up the cross, follow Jesus, and have the reward that Jesus promises. The reward of being with you, Lord. We want to be with you. Please bring us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.